This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Almost 30 years ago, my father, Thomas Brown, bought me a book by a Texas photographer named Wyman Menzer. Wyman is a cowboy, a fur trader, a pilot, a husband, an outdoorsman, storyteller, father, marksman, a conservationist, an author, and a photographer, and most of all, a West Texan. He is full of life and has a passion for everything he does. Every day when I when I wake, I'm thinking, what can I do today uh, that's that's going to be an adventure? No matter uh, how small it is, if it's or if it's a major life changer, I just want to be able to accomplish something by the end of the day. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from doctors, farmers, and one of the greatest basketball players of all time, Denise Curry. 84. I grew up really in Northern California. I go to school in Los Angeles. The Olympics are in Los Angeles. I make the team. We win the gold medal. So my family's all here. Some of my best friends are there. Some of my teammates from and classmates from UCLA are working the Olympics. I mean, it's really cool because... So many people are so important to me and so influential in, in my life and, and for me getting to where I was, we're there. So it was really awesome to get to share that with everybody. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Wyman Menzer. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a very, very long time. Wyman, how are you, sir? I'm, I'm doing quite well, man. How are you? Oh, you're doing more than quite well, sir. You are doing <laughs> far more than quite well. You are, a, you are a living legend who I can't believe I get to talk to on a podcast. Well, you're very kind. <laughs> I like we talked about before we hit the record button. Your story is um I don't know not not what the normal person in America would think, you know, growing up would be like. You're you're from West Texas, you're a world-renowned photographer. You're you're in a part of the country a lot of people don't realize because where you're at in West Texas it's not, and you know this, we'll talk about it. It's, it's got the most region of any part of Texas. My, my dad grew up there and he would always say West Texas is where the, uh, the Rocky mountains got tired and stopped. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what was it like for a young boy growing up in, in Texas? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, having, uh, uh, my dad was a foreman. I'm sorry about that little dinging. It's coming up on the computer. These ads and stuff. Um, my dad was uh, was a foreman on a on a 27,000 acre ranch, and I grew up as a cowboy. Uh, it was just kind of I rode horses, I broke horses, and and we worked cattle, and and uh, and then I went off to college after high school, and uh, at Texas Tech, and I was since I was really into hunting very heavily. Um, I decided that I would get a, try to get a degree in wildlife biology. And I did. Now, did but, dad, uh, did dad influence you with hunting? Was that something that was around? No, no my dad didn't even hunt. My dad didn't even hunt. He, he, I don't even know if he really, yeah, he owned a 22 and that was it. Okay. 
so we got it actually from my mother's uh, dad. He was a big hunter back in the Depression years and a trapper. Okay. And so I guess that's where that genetic uh, connection came from. But uh, <laughs> from mom's side. <laughs> from mom's, yeah, mom's side, and she didn't like hunting. My mother, my mother didn't care for it. Okay. And my brother really picked it up. And but anyway, uh, and then once at uh, at school at in college, I uh, was able to uh, attain a grant to do some uh, uh, research, a year's worth of research on coyote uh, dietary habits, and I was loaned a camera uh, by my major professor, Dr. Daryl Ann Eckert. He said, you know, document some data for us. And wow, uh, he told me, he said, there's some Kodachrome down in the in the uh, wildlife lab, so go down there and get you a few rolls. And and man, I mean, once I saw that stuff come back, I'm going, you know, I like this. But, but and it, that's got to be tough, though. Like if, I mean, just a, here's a camera and go document. That's, uh, you know, what was the camera? Do you even remember? Well, yeah, it was a, a little Argus, one of those Argus oh. R3s or something like that, little twin lens jobs. You know, you focus, uh-huh. you compose in one and you focus with the other. Oh. And uh, but it, you know, it shot you know reasonably good images and uh, a lot better than I had at the time. You know, I had a little seven dollar you know one twenty seven at uh, out of Sears and Roebuck, <laughs> and so uh, I uh, just uh, just began shooting and and color light always fascinated me, and so I would find myself you know doing a lot of sky stuff along with uh, documenting data uh, because I had to eventually give uh, the results of my paper at the International Meeting for the Society of Range Management in Tucson, Arizona, my senior year. And uh, I had to, th- those were the images that I, uh, that I created during that, that research uh, period with that Argus camera. Right. And so once I got, got out of school, I, uh, right before I graduated, I, I, when I had to give that camera back, I purchased a little Canon TL and with a one one eight. 50 millimeter lens and uh, shot with it for a while. And then there was a stint there in 1975. I worked for the forest department in Santa Fe, New Mexico for a couple of months. And I just decided at that point, you know what? I think I, I think I want to get published. Now that's a real bug to get like from, you know, doing from research and you're trying to figure out shutter speeds and apertures and what this all means. And you've got ectochrome, which is pretty, you know, tough to work with. To, yeah. to, to deciding yeah. like, wow, this is stirring something up in me. Yeah, it's I was shooting Kodachrome 25 and uh, 64. Oh, my and, God. Uh, yeah, and so uh, I learned pretty quickly that, uh, that the magazines weren't too interested in what I had, and so that sort of, that sort of really uh, energized me, if, if I may, and um, – and I worked for a couple more years real hard and kept submitting. And finally, in 1979, uh, four years later, I began to be published in the, in the Nationals and State Magazine, Texas Parks and Wildlife. And, but I really, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, most people will start out shooting state and regional, but I immediately started uh, submitting to the Nationals, uh, Sports of Field, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, Smithsonian, all those guys. <laughs> And man, I—I I mean, I ran up against some tough cookies there. Sure, uh, you, know, you know, those those uh, those uh, art directors in New York are—you know—they're pretty in-your-face guys. And, they're rattlesnakes. But, 
<laughs> oh yeah, there was one of them. You know, he just he just told me he said this is what you. He said I like the angles that you shoot. I like your angle. I like your eye for light. You're just going to have to get a different subject that hasn't been that hasn't been uh, over overdone. And so I studied the magazines and decided, well, I'm going to just do wild turkey for a month. And so for 30, 37 days nonstop, every day at 4 a.m., I got up and I got went down on the river and I photographed wild turkeys. And with my, with those images, after 37 days, I got uh, three national covers in one month. What? And that started what? the ball roll. Um, was the early morning light something that attracted you? Because obviously when you were trapping, you're up at the crack of dawn. So yes. was that something that, that saturated light, watching it come over, you know, the crest of yes. anything? Was that the hook? That that was that was a, a lot of it. That and, and right at the last ray of, of evening and watching the top of those canyon walls, uh, you know, being lit up and then, then – go into the shadows and it just fascinated me. I, I was, uh, uh, and of course at the, uh, at the time I wasn't that great at, uh, composing or my exposures. And so I wasted a lot of, of, uh, Chrome film, but I learned, you know, and I would write down my mistakes. I would write down, you know, this is what you need to do to improve because I, you know, I lived far from, well, 125 miles from the closest city, that had, you know, major photographers. And so I didn't have anybody to talk to. I just was out there by myself and, and just studied it. Uh, that's what I was going to ask uh, if you had any mentors, but you had nothing. It was just you and your camera. No. It was just, there was nothing, no one else. Wow. That's hard. That's a real, that's that, a real violent learning curve when you have nobody is. to bump off ideas and you're kind of, I'm sure confused. Like why didn't this work? Yes, many times. And I did a lot of black and white in the early years as well. Um, I was always sort of fascinated with, with really high quality black and white with the good tones. And I actually had my own dark room for uh, several years and studied uh, Ansel Adam and Fred Picker's zone system mm. and went all the way cold light heads and Schneider lenses and, and worked with uh, fiber-based papers and but once I got into the magazine work, I realized that black and white was basically, uh, you know, a dead end road as far as realizing any income from it. So I pretty well put that away and uh, and just focused on on chrome film. Right. Yeah. I mean, so in those early years, you know, it it's so easy today to like find an art director, look somebody up. But in those early years, how are you making even those connections to anybody in New York? I just looked at the magazines and found a phone number <laughs> and just called them up and say, Hey, I, I'm here. I'm in Texas. You know, what can I do to, to get be published? I mean, and those guys would tell me, and I mean, I would submit and boy, I mean, I would get them back in a hurry if it wasn't good, but if it was, they, they were honest about it and they said, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. I think we can use it. And of course that just fed fuel on the fire and uh, by 1985, I was considered, uh, I was actually named by uh, Sports of Field as one of uh, five uh, new breed of photographers in America. And why do you think that was? What did they see? 
Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I had one photographer tell me he stopped by. He was a great guy, Tom Ulrich, just a wonderful guy. He's, he's deceased now, uh, maybe a year older than me. But uh, he traveled around the country, lived in Montana. But he came by to see me one time, and he said, uh, you know, you and about five or six others are considered uh, what we, we all consider big shooters, and that means you shoot a lot of covers. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm not, I shoot a lot of illustrative stuff, but he did a lot of it, you know, and you don't shoot a whole lot of covers, but like, you know, illustrative uh, material is much easier to, I say much easier. Um, it's, um, it's not as difficult as shooting a real strong cover shot for, for a national magazine. Right. But that's what I focused on. I really, really wanted those covers, uh, because I felt like that would put me out there and, um, and then I, you know, just, I just had, I just had a big, a big idea. You know, I just, I wanted to do good. Right. And, you know, and when you're thinking covers, that means you got to, your compositions always got to be vertical or at least you're thinking that yeah. way. And you know what they want, are they going to have space for all the, the header and all exactly. the type on the side? So yeah, all those things come into play when you're trying to go and look for big game hunting, which is the cover. Yes, yes, yep, yeah. and and of course now with digital, you know, if you shoot a nice horizontal uh, with a little bit of space above, they can crop it because mm-hmm. digital digital is so much easier to work with. Oh yeah, uh, but you know, during the film days, man, if you you had to shoot if you're going to shoot cover, it pretty well had to be a vertical. Yeah, yeah, it was very rare that somebody would say, "Okay, we'll make that exception. We'll crop in, lose some quality from that, yes. from that horizontal." Geez. So, I mean, where were you, where were you in those early years with, with your gear? Cause you, again, you have no mentor to say, Hey, don't buy that camera, buy this lens. Don't do that. So like, well, I would go, yeah, I would go to a camera store in in Amarillo and I would stand around on weekends and wish because, you know, (laughs) Nikon, Canon stuff, the high end was very expensive. Oh yeah. uh, and so I realized that, that I needed to really get some good glass. Uh, that was very, very important. Uh, but I also wanted a motor drive uh, on, on a camera. So I saved up while I was trapping and selling furs. I saved up and bought a Canon F1 with an MF motor drive. And then I ordered the big glass. I ordered a 500-millimeter Canon Fluorite F5.6 lens. I mean, that thing was like... Uh, a very rare item in Texas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and that's that, that lens really, it was a great lens, but, but get a load of this. If you shoot any, any, any people today that shoots a, a long lens, they focus so close, mm-hmm. you know, like I've got a Canon, my favorite long lens is a Canon 100 to 400, uh, lens and it'll focus down to, to almost inches. This 500 fluorite would focus minimum 33 feet. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that's the difference in lenses then and those today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that thing weighed a ton. It was heavy. It was cumbersome. And it, and it uh, when it focused, it extended. I forgot what, how the, the proper terminology to describe that, but it was a helical or something like that focusing apparatus that the lens got longer uh-huh and whenever you whenever you focused it closer with well, the lens got longer 
and it got harder to focus. <laughs> and so, and in 81, whenever they came out with the, the new internal focusing lenses, the 500-4.5 uh, Canon lens, uh, uh, low dispersion glass, mm-hmm. I immediately, I immediately bought one of those. I sold that 500 fluorite to a man in Chicago. And, uh, and yeah, I, he gave me what I, what I paid for it. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And then I got that 500, uh, four or five and that thing was like stepping up many, many rungs of the ladder. It was incredible. It focused close. Uh, it focused easy. And, uh, and I used it until, uh, until the autofocus lenses came in. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I'm sure that thing lasted a good period of time for you. Cause that's oh, yeah. a major. I still have one. Yeah. Yeah. I still have one. I still have all my F ones, my F one ends with motor drives, uh, the, uh, 300, two eights, uh, the 404, five, 500, four, five, 17 rectilinear, uh, 2.8 L lens, all of them. I got the whole battery. You could open up a rental house at your place. I could if, <laughs> if someone wanted to use FD lenses. <laughs> if someone's in West Texas and needs a lens, let's just have them get a hold of you. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. It, isn't it amazing? Like we talk about, you know, the minimal focus, like that's a big deal, but it really was back then. All those lenses oh, yeah. were had major challenges. Major. And, and, and a lot, nearly all of the zoom lenses were not, very uh didn't have good resolution no. i mean they were pretty sorry let's let's just put it quite frankly they were pretty sorry yeah they were they were oh man they were crap yeah. like you would rather have shot with a 180 than any 70 to 300 because oh, yeah. that 180 was going to be tech sharp yep yep it's i agree yeah i had a 100 to 200 that was absolutely pathetic um but at the time, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be choosy. I, I couldn't afford, you know, all the lenses I wanted. And I gradually uh, was able to purchase them. And, uh, and then all of a sudden autofocus came along and I had to change everything. <laughs> Damn them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, what, was your, what was your kit like back then, those early days when you're running around with a brick full of film? When you would go out, what was your... Like well, setup. if I was traveling, say, for instance, if I was going to Canada or Alaska or something, uh, uh, like the Yukon Territory, I was up there shooting a story for Sports of Field in 1987. Uh, my camera gear would weigh around 75 pounds. <laughs> um, yeah, I would carry the, the 400, 400 4.5, 300, 2.8, 500, 4.5, a 28-80, uh, 80-200, and a 20-millimeter. And those were my lenses. And then I'd carry like two or three Canon F1 bodies, F1N bodies with motor drives. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I got on so many planes. I remember one day getting on a, uh, going into the uh, DFW airport and I had my, all my clothes bag is going to be gone for three weeks and uh clothes bag and all my camera gear. And I had, went, I went from gate one to gate 39 walking. Oh my. Yes. When I got there, I was totally covered in sweat <laughs> because I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to take up that little, that little cart that comes by and picks you up. Yeah. No. But by God, whenever I got back, 
and landed at gate 39 and my flight was at gate one i jumped on that cart and grinned real big <laughs> yeah you had no problem jumping on board absolutely <laughs> <laughs> it's so okay there it goes again with the advancement of technology like there was no photo roller bags back then nothing had uh, wheels like it was all satchel oh, right. yeah it was right. all, yeah it was all satchel bags and heavy steel and yeah. It was brutal. Oh, it was brutal. I had a uh, customized bag made at the King Ranch Saddle Shop that carried two of my big lenses with camera bodies on them. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine. Well, one, the 504.5 weighed, I think, six pounds, a 300.28 weighed like four. And then you put two F1N uh, uh, with motor drives on in the bag as well. And you had a hunk on your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, God. Yeah, you, it was a workout just getting from one place to another with your gear back then. Yes, it, it was not fun. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's uh, we've come a long way in technology and just uh, how things have gotten lighter and smaller. And, uh, you bet. Yeah, boy, they have no idea how we could sound. We could sound like those two old guys on a on a cul-de-sac telling you to stop running around. But surely enough, that's how it was back then. You had to be uh, strong to carry that gear yeah. a long distance, especially some of the stuff you were shooting. You're out in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah, yeah. I just, uh, when I was in the Yukon, uh, we were up there for three weeks, and um, and you know you had to take batteries with you. Um, uh, couldn't and I it, and also I had to take a tripod. Yeah, yes. And uh, because you know you, you don't know what you're going to run against. The, the weather in the Yukon was uh, sometimes terrible, and I could handhold uh, stuff at a pretty slow shutter. But once you put a really big lens on there, you kind of had to watch it. Mm -hmm. uh, I always prided myself shooting even a 500 by handholding because I shot a lot of wildlife, and you can't carry a tripod around with you when you're shooting really, truly wild animals. I mean, not in a park, but when you're out there humping it after wild animals, you can't carry a tripod. So I learned early to, uh, to handhold a 500 millimeter. And so, but I knew that I needed to take a tripod with me. So I took a get so tripod to, uh, to, uh, the Yukon and that added more weight. Right. That's pre-carbon fiber. That was a, that was a metal yes. tripod. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they wouldn't let you even check that on today in an airplane because it would be a weapon. Oh, no. No. It's, uh, yeah, things have changed. Oh, God. Was, was, was that transitional period when all, like when going into autofocus lenses, was that, was that good for you or was it kind of difficult because yeah. there's a slowing down period when you're manually focusing and you look at your corners and you are aware of where your focal length and depth of fields are going to be. And then with autofocus, it's, we kind of get into just like running and gunning. Yeah. Well, at, by that time I had pretty well, um, Oh, I could read the photograph. I could read, I knew what I needed and I didn't really have to think about it. I, all I did is did it was as com composed and made sure my exposure was correct. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew what what f stop to uh, to put it on for depth of field if I wanted f eleven or sixteen, and uh, and of course that was in, uh, relative to the lens that I put on. Uh, longer lenses, if you wanted some depth of field, you had to have a little bit more f stop and slower shutter speed. But 
by that time, uh, whenever uh, autofocus rolled around, I was pretty well familiar with I could just throw up and, and shoot, and uh, everything was pretty automatic. Right. Yeah, because I remember going to autofocus, and I thought, I don't know if this is making me better or not right away. I mean, the autofocus, the early autofocus was yeah. pretty rough. What we have today is, is outstanding. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. See, I, I do a lot of, my next book is going to be on, on calling uh, predators. It's uh, the art of calling predators. And there is not a harder creature that I've ever seen in all my travels over 40 years, plus years, 40, 45 I've never seen an animal any harder to photograph than a wild coyote or bobcat. And uh, autofocus is a godsend. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Because they're like, a bullet. they're like a bullet coming at you. And when they come at a certain distance, they instantly stop, turn around, and they're gone. Sure. And so there was no time to really manual focus anything. And no, this autofocus is a godsend. And they're they're unbelievably camouflaged. They're the same color as most of the landscape. They move like yes. a hummingbird, and they yes. have this ability to get real low. So now you can't even see them in the brush. God knows. Yes. I don't know how the. I've looked at your images. And I don't know how on God's green earth you've made some of those. My God, you're gifted. <laughs> sometimes, I, sometimes I wonder. <laughs> that was luck. <laughs> It's um, and and I saw that. I mean, you're with your animals from your trapping and hunting days. You use calling to like, like a model direct or or get the attention of animals. That is unbelievable. Yes, yeah, I do that. That's that's my big deal. Is I is I call coyotes and photograph them. Used to I I would use the rifle all the time, and uh, and and that was important because. I think it was Aldo Leopold uh, once said that some of the greatest naturalists are old trappers, guys that had to really study the quarry that they hunted. And so I was one at one time, and uh, and it made me a better photographer. Wow. I can read sign. I, I can read body language. I know what the animal is going to do before he does it, basically. And I know when to move, when not to move. And all of this is occurring in in seconds. In a, in a matter of just maybe five or 10 seconds. And so, uh, it was, uh, those years of hunting were a blessing. Um, but, um, I, yeah. I, and, and, you know, knowing how to put, where to, where to, to, uh, situate yourself. Yeah. In order, you know, to take advantage. I tell you what, you find yourself being more or less, uh, thinking like a predator and they're the prey. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you come from, you get the sun at your back. You know how a hawk will hunt. They'll come in at a quail with the sun at their back, and the quail never sees them. Right. And so you put the sun at your back, you put the wind in your face, and you uh, you select a location where you suspect the predator will approach, which is the approach quarter, and uh, and then you, you uh, blend in with your background. You make sure that you've got a good... Uh, uh, a strong natural background like a, a bush or a tree or a boulder mm-hmm. and uh and you become basically a predator in weight only thing is that you don't kill right you capture with your image you 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 create images of the natural history of that animal the look on his face you know the body language 
and I have photographed thousands of them, and every one is a new, like a new day. I love it. Wow. It's, I saw that you were building like, just like if you're hunting, you were building blinds so you can shoot from, and you're just making the terrain like you're just your own little hut to capture images. That is unbelievable. Yeah, I did that with wild turkey a lot, but with coyotes, um, you don't use a blind. You just walk into the into the landscape, onto the range, and you locate a a tree or a, a, a just a shrub, anything with a that'll break your silhouette, right? And uh, and get the sun at your back, the wind in your face, and they don't always come from from upwind. That means the wind from them to you. Uh, sometimes they come crosswind, so you've got about a 180-degree arc that you have to keep watching at all times. So there's a lot of peripheral vision action going on. If it comes up behind you, you don't worry about it because it's gone. You hear their feet, and then you hear them rushing away and just hope they don't jump on your back, you know, <laughs> if you got strong enough. <laughs> I had one bobcat jump on my back one time, and that's going to be the last time. Oh, he, he got you. He snuck up on you. Yeah, he jumped, jumped and hit me in the shoulders and knocked me forward and pushed off and then took off running. Yeah, it scared me. Uh, actually surprised me and kind of angered me. And a uh, little bit, it spooked me a little. I bet. Did, now, I got to ask from one photographer to another, did you get any frames off? Well, that day I was hunting. Oh, <laughs> Now that really pisses you off then. Yeah, and, and he did get shot. I did shoot him because I was afraid he had rabies. Uh-huh. And so I, I would have to get the uh, send the head off if he scratched me, but luckily it didn't go through my my coat. Oh God, good. Okay, so like so, so. that that's just unbelievable. Like the the preparation that you put into some of these to make some of these images early on, when you know you're still trying to find yourself and you're trying to get images to New York or to people, and and you're trying to find your way early in your career, and you're crossing over your trapping days and now to your images that's just unbelievable what a transition it is a transition it, it really is and you know and I, I hold a fondness for a steel trap i've got several of them bear traps lion traps and wolf traps on either side of my fireplace and <laughs> on a cold winter night i'll light up the fire and sit there and i'll i'll just still sit in wonderment and look at those traps and think wow those were some of the tools that taught me what i what I know today where I could be the photographer that I am. Right now, like every artist, there's transitional periods in their career, arcs and curves and shapes and turns in the late eighties. You make, you've, you make a transition. You've kind of done a lot and you decide I'm going in a different direction. What, Yes. what, what was that? You know, was that scary? Was that needed? Was that a soul cleanser? What was that for you? I was becoming bored with just wildlife, although wildlife basically was the paved the way for where I am today. Mm -hmm. um, I was becoming bored with it. It's the same old, same old, you know, the deer, the, you know, elk and whatever. And so I decided that, uh, that I had more to offer and that I wanted to, to expand into landscape, into culture of the various cultures in texas mm -hmm. and um the sky and i'll tell you that was one of the best decisions i could have made it just it so enriched my life and uh, and prom 
probably was the reason, one of the, the, the main reasons that, that I was selected as the official state photographer of Texas is because I didn't just focus on one aspect of Texas. Uh, I celebrated essentially everything that defined the state. Right. I, I kind of looked at, I'm looking at like the curve. I'm looking at your images and I'm looking at that time period. I would kind of correlate it and tell me if I'm right or wrong. I could be totally off. Like that was kind of those, that late eighties, I think it was 88. You talked about like, that's yes. kind of like when you would, if you started early in your career, like 12, 13, 14, shoot through high school through shoot through college. That kind of is where you're starting to, for me, it looks like you're out of college. Now I'm going to change and I'm going to do landscapes and shoot the whole state of Texas. That was kind of like that birthing period for you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. It was. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's really what was difficult about it was that I went from primarily using a super uh, telephoto lens, which, you know, other than holding it, you know, uh, uh, carefully enough to get really sharp images, because as I'd mentioned previously, I handheld mostly uh, uh, the big lenses mm -hmm. uh, to using a wide angle. And that is such a transition. Oh, yeah. That's an incredible People don't realize it. They just say, well, a wide-angle lens is a wide-angle lens. But no, you with a long lens, you don't necessarily compose because it's you shoot strong and you have no background, no foreground. Uh, your depth of field is minimal. But with a wide-angle lens, uh, when, you, when you slap one of those on, then it becomes everything is basically in focus mm -hmm. because you're not trying to isolate anything you're trying to be all inclusive with your elements. And so, so then you have to start really thinking about composition and where to put these various elements to create this pathway through the frame that's going to interest the, the viewing public. And so you can shoot a mundane shot that's just, just there's nothing there. They just look at it and go, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a piece of country. <laughs> and then you can, then you can walk, 10 feet over and have a, a boulder and a colorful bush and maybe a stump, you know, an old uh, cedar uh, stump that's very colorful or, or ancient. And then that leads your eye into, into the distance. And then perhaps the sky becomes another element if you've got clouds and good light. And, but once I did, then a wide angle lens became my favorite lens. Wow. I, Loved a wide angle lens. I shot, I shot like I mentioned, I shot everything from a 14 millimeter rectilinear. Uh, my favorite is probably a today a 24 to 105 on my full full sensor cameras. Right. Yeah. It's you know, and you nailed it the way the way you talk about it when you're shooting with a long lens. It's all about compression, so there is no yes. strong composition. But when you've got a 24 or 35 and you're shooting the land and you've got foreground now and you're trying to draw your eye to stuff. That's really the difference between, you know, making photos and taking photos. Yes. Yes. You, you, you have to become a creator at that time, you know, a photographic creator, because if you don't have all these elements included that, that takes the viewer's eye and gives it sort of a road trip, through the frame, basically, and uh, when you when you miss one of those stepping stones, well, then that's just a, a missing element that 
causes distraction. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So how was that transitional period for you? You started shooting some models and some commercial work. Was that yeah. Was that you good? Know, I enjoyed, yeah, the model work was good. Uh, I enjoyed working with the people. You know, uh, um, it's not something that you know I wanted to continue doing. But I, you know, I shot a lot of mod- modeling portfolios for for gals and guys that were. Some of them were headed to to New York to some of the uh, competitions there. Some of my images actually won some awards there at the, at the, wherever they were doing their modeling stuff. That's thirty years ago, right? But uh, but it was good because I still shoot. I still have to uh, to shoot images of people, like in um, in natural settings, like cowboys doing mm-hmm. work and stuff. Right. And so I watch for those facial expressions that tell a story. Yeah, and so that's well, I, that's a perfect transition from shooting these beautiful people to and yeah. you know before that you're shooting a coyote and you're calling him. Or a wild turkey, <laughs> yeah. right? Now you're yeah. shooting beautiful people, and you have to have people skills. You got to tell them, you know, bring yes. bring your shoulder towards me, raise up your this, do that. That yes. transitions, in, yeah, into now dealing with ranchers. Be, yes, everything has to be positive. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you're not ever negative. Although you want to be sometime, sure, you have to be. Wow, you know, you're great, you're fantastic. You know, all you do is just do do this for me, and, and this is going to be super. <laughs> And, and you can see them react positively to it. Right. But I know that not just probably a year or so back, I was uh, shooting some uh, a property for uh, our real estate broker that my wife and I are with. And I, and this guy was selling like 8,000 acres. And and uh, and I said, now, look, I need a I need a good photograph, uh, a portrait of you. And he said, man, and he's, he's an older guy. He said, I don't like doing that. He said, I've never. I've never been in a situation where I've enjoyed having my portrait made. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to change that. So I said, let's walk out here to the barn. We walked out to his barn. And I said, sit right there in the doorway in the, in the, in a sort of a shadowed area where there wasn't any direct sunlight. And I said, turn your face this way. And then you just look at me and I'll start shooting and I'll tell you what you need to do in about 20 shots into it. I said, Hey, we got it. He said, it was that it? I said, that's it. He said, well, that wasn't bad. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> but see, that's the difference between a pro. Like you've just, you've gotten your 10,000 hours in, you know what you're doing, and you can make people feel comfortable. Like that's that's the great thing in what we do yeah. as photographers is that connection we can make with people. It's unbelievable, our power. Yes, you, you really have to be positive with them and, and let them know that everything is going to be fine and this is this is going to be painless and they're going to like it. They're going to really enjoy the result and it's amazing what you can get done and how you can how you can touch the lives of people. How was then the 90s for you? So you get you get into that. What is that transitional period yeah. in the 90s? The 90s the 90s was when I started shooting uh decided to go into book publishing. Okay. Um I was just trailing off shooting for the national magazines. I decided that I didn't really want to do that anymore. Uh, I think the last, the last year I shot for him, I shot three covers for field and stream. And I said, you know what? I'm done. And so, um, I had already been shooting these images, creating these images of roadrunners and recording the natural history of them. And, 
And a friend of mine, a college buddy of mine, uh, Larry Butler, he's now Dr. Larry Butler, a PhD. Uh, he, he saw some of my work. And he said, you need to get a, you need to publish these in a book. And so I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. I'd already sold some to national geographic, uh, booked a division and had, um, uh, sold some to international magazines. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do that. And, and, um, and, and it's still in publication today. That's 1990. Wow. That's for, that's what, that's uh, 30, 32 years. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still in publication. That is unbelievable. I've got it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Yeah. It's, um, what was that? Smithsonian did a Smithsonian magazine did a ten-page spread on that book. <laughs> uh, I published in Hortsu in Germany, Dostier, Germany, Wildlands in France. Um, uh, just uh, oh yeah, uh, Korea Geo. Uh, those Roadrunners have been published everywhere. My lord. It, well, okay. Now here's another thing where, you know, we, it's such a different period today than it was in the eighties and nineties. How were you keeping track of your film? If you're sending stuff out to New York and it's coming back and you want to make a book, what was your archive like? Oh, that's, um, you know, I had these, uh, filing cabinets and I had, I had folders in them and I, and I would label each folder, but what hurt in those days, would you would send, say, a page with 20 images in it mm-hmm. to a major magazine. They may keep them for five years. Yeah. You wouldn't have them. You wouldn't see them for five years. You'd even forget about them. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, one day you go, well, you know, we used three that we paid you for, and here's the rest of them. I don't think we have use for them. Well, wow, I forgot I had them. <laughs> right. And digital is just really digitizing slides. I mean, now I don't have to worry about shipping them out because I had some images that were that were totally ruined. I remember sending to one major magazine, big time magazine, and they cut one of my my thirty five millimeter uh, chrome images. They cut it in two with a razor. Oh they didn't mean to. Oh my god! The razor slipped. Yeah, when they were when they were cutting the uh, uh, the cardboard around the, the slide. Mm-hmm. Uh, razor slipped and they cut that, uh, that transparency oh. and they made me another one and then paid me a thousand bucks, uh, for the damaged uh, slide. But, uh, yeah, yeah. The, those are, those, are those heartbreaking moments as a photographer that you're just kind of like, Oh yeah. Oh. Or whenever, Oh, another one, another bad deal was <laughs> a lot of them would immerse this film in, in some oil in order to do a drum scan. Yes. And you would get the the this, the chrome back, and it would be it looked like you'd poured motor oil on. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was basically ruined. Yeah, yeah basically that, ruined. That was always wonderful was too. Awesome. Yeah, that was brilliant. Uh, my best was when you sent it out to editor or art director A. You don't know within that year they've now left. And then yes. you're calling and they're like, oh, they don't longer live or work here. And it's like, well, I saw this many, yeah, I, <laughs> I, gave them, many times. <laughs> yeah, I gave them my film six months ago. Well, if it comes about, we'll give you a call. And you're just like, oh, yeah. God. Oh, that tape yeah. is gone. Are you, are, you, are you send it? Are you send, say, 100 images to a, a new upstart magazine? And for six months, you don't hear a word. Yeah. And then you call another photographer in another state that you know sent them also sent them images, and he said, "Oh, they went out of business." Oh, 
And so, and so you make a phone call, you know, five States away and, and you get nothing. And so you go to the sheriff's office and they get to the DA's office and the DA calls their DA in that city. And that DA sends the sheriff out and they go to his house and knock on the door and say, either you send the slides back to this man or we're going to arrest you. (laughs) And you finally get your images back. Oh, did that actually happen? That actually happened. Oh my Lord. Yes, that actually happened. Oh God. Yeah, that's 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 a pain in the ass too. Thank God we don't <laughs> thank God we don't have to go through that now. We just send stuff FTP Absolutely. or something. Holy Absolutely. Lord. I remember I remember the first digital image. It was a it was a, a scanned thirty five millimeter slide. And I got a, a request from a magazine in France. And so I, uh, I scanned this image and, uh, and sent it to them. And they received it and paid me. And I'm going, wow, man, this is a dawning of a new day. <laughs> yeah. I still have my image. I got paid. And my image is in good shape. <laughs> yeah. Nobody cut it. Nobody screwed it yeah. up. They dumped it in motor oil. And I pay- put motor oil on it. <laughs> and you guys are still in business. Yeah. And you're halfway around <laughs> the world. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah, see. There are some good things about the digital. I, I love. I really love. But I feel for those people who never really got to use Chrome. Uh, negative film, not that big a deal, but Chrome was tough. Mm-hmm. You had to be on the money. You know, it's, it was so unforgiving as you well know. Oh yeah. And, and as, uh, and the people who know nothing but digital, I think they're really missing out there. I, I, I bet you can close your eyes right now. You can think of a white table, a light table with Chrome on it and how beautiful that is. When you see oh, so colorful, so beautiful, so, right? Yes. Everything seems, you know, the sunset seemed better. Yeah. The blues seemed bluer. Like everything was alive on a light table. It's yeah. such a and magical it was more thing. real. Yeah. It was, it was really actually more real, yeah. you know, and I, I find, I'll tell you one of the drawbacks in, in digital. And like I say, I love it, but I treat my digital imagery like I treat, I look at my images like I do, like I did film. I, I get the image, the raw, shoot everything raw, and I know it's going to be a little flat. Mm-hmm. I know it's not going to be as sharp as it could be. So I'll go in and I'll tweak it slightly, but I make it to where it looks like what I shot. So, but I don't pump it. I see way too many images that people go in and pump up, you know, the the, the contrast and 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 all of that you know, the various, you know, levels that you can, that you can fool with. And it's, uh, it really takes away from digital photography when you do that. Oh, it does. It does. It's uh, the, the sad thing is, is immediately how many times you see a photo today and go, is that real? Or is that, has that been doctored? Oh, and you know, you uh-huh. and I know yeah. if it's real or not, yeah. you know, I can look at an image and I go, Hey, that's not real. I've never in my 71 years, of living. I have never seen light like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Yes. We don't you have know, two give me sons. A break. Yeah. We do not have two sons. So that's not possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. And I, just, so, I just judged a contest and I actually had to tell the, the, 
person running the the contest, I said, I think this photo has been doctored because I don't think that mountain range exists. Like it just, yeah, it, it didn't look right. Yeah. Whenever they put them in there, whenever they, uh, what do you call it? When they clone it in there, uh-huh. that's wrong. That's not, that's, that's not good at all. No, no, no. But well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a no, no. Yeah. That's, but that's digital and social media. Everybody wants to try to one each other up, which is just really sad. That, that, that is true. Now, you know, when you are racing, you know, dirt spots, it's on your sensor. I mean, that stuff is necessary. It's like getting, it's like uh, the other day I was uh, sending some images out and they were Chrome stuff. You know, I had to send out, I think it might've been to Yeti and uh, they're doing a father's day thing. Uh, and they sent a photographer and uh, art director and producer in here from Austin. And actually the photographer out of Montana, great guy. And, uh, it was a, it was a father's day thing. And both my sons are pilots and I'm a pilot. So they wanted to photograph us, uh, you know, flying and getting in the plane, carrying Yeti gear in and out. And then, but they wanted images of whenever my boys were small. And I had these images of them sitting in my lap when they were like four and five years old and we're sitting in front of a 1946 old tailwheel aircraft that I used to fly. <laughs> and obviously it's got dust specks all over it. Sure. And so, you know, you're going to have to go in and remove that stuff. Right. But, uh, but as far as cloning and putting an extra person in there or something like that, I just don't, I don't dig that at all. You know what I kind of miss? And, and you touched it a little bit is when we made black and white prints and then you had to go in with the, the brush and the, the dye and you kind of had a, paint in the little spots. I, oh yeah. Uh-huh. I kind of, yeah. I kind of miss that. I don't know why I just felt like yeah. that was kind of like the final touches to the actual print just to remove yeah. the little spots. I always kind of, yeah. What I, what I don't miss about black and white work is yellow fingers all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Smell like fixer. And smell and the yellow fingernails and the yellow you know, down to your first knuckle, you everything's yeah. yellow and shriveled up for six hours a day working in a dark room. I didn't care much for that. I, I once was picking up my then girlfriend, now wife, up from work, and I had worked in the photo lab all day making prints, like 12 hours. And oh, wow. I don't know why I got pulled over, and I roll down my window, and that cop <laughs> takes a step back, and he's thinking, is there a meth lab in your car? he was like what in the hell put your hands on the wheel and i walked out and i said sir listen i have been in a photo lab and like the cop's eyes were cross-eyed from my smell and and the sad thing is is i couldn't smell it so i was i was like oh this has got to change i can't do this if i don't smell how bad i am oh my god (laughs) you know actually i actually published one book in black and white uh, it was Contemporary Ranches of Texas, and I was uh, commissioned to do that by a good uh, good man. He was actually uh, a PhD, uh, maybe even the like the chancellor or the president of uh, of a university over here in Abilene, Texas. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away before the the book was published. But uh, but it was black, all black and white, and I uh, printed every one of the images myself on pa- on fiber based paper and used a hot press to uh to 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 dry the images mm-hmm. and so my last my last hurrah with black and white was one hell of a big party 
That's it. If you're going to go out big, go big. Don't, don't fool go around. big, man. Go big. Yeah. <laughs> was that, was that more work being that it was a black and white than any of your other books? Uh, you know, the black and white, I could shoot, I could shoot more in midday. So I could cover a lot of country because I could use, you know, a uh, red filter, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a yellow filter and get a little contrast. So it didn't look so flat. Right. And so I had to cover so much country, so much of Texas in a short period of time and cover so many ranches that it was necessary for me to, I I just couldn't sit and wait at sunrise and sunset and then move to another ranch. I had to just keep on the move all the time. So in that respect, it was easier. Okay. Of course, the the darkroom time was, was, um, you know, quite extensive. You know, I had to spend a lot of time and, uh, and, uh, you know, hours and days and weeks in a dark room. And I forgot how many images they used, but it all turned out very nice, very nice uh, imagery. <clears throat> I used some uh, European uh, warm base uh, paper. It's, I forgot the name of it now, but it's, uh, it was a European paper that gave kind of a warm tint oh, nice. and made really nice images. Oh, see, that's the kind of stuff too. When was the last time you made a print? A black, oh, a, a black and white print? Any print. Like, that's the things we miss. Oh, when, oh. When we were early yeah, in our career, yeah. we were making prints all the time, and you hang them in your house. But now, it's kind of something that's, you got to kind of, it's kind of kind of lost. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. If I need a print now, I just send it to Dallas or Lubbock. <laughs> and uh, they, they print it up for me, and I go up there and grin real big and pay them and go home. <laughs> <laughs> and you got your fingers aren't yellow, so it's not so bad. My fingers aren't yellow. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you touched on it. You you got into a really great market shooting ranches when you were doing, like, the 3Ds, the Wagner Ranch. Like, that's when you can see your when you were doing the models, how that translates to the Cowboys and the ranches, like all of a sudden your images became like really epic. Was that a yes. fun period doing those, those it ranches? Was. It, it was. Um, I enjoyed uh, being around the Cowboys because uh, as I'd mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, I lived on a ranch. I was raised on a ranch. My yeah. dad was an old time cowboy from the depression years. I knew the language of these guys. I appreciated the work they did. I knew good horses when I saw them and I knew how to talk to these guys and we got along uh, just beautifully. And so, uh, and they'd always say, well, you know, we're going to be branding up. We got two draggers and we got uh, some two sets of flankers. Now we're talking about a lot of work going on and you can get run over very easily. And I told them uh, I would be in the pen with them and I'd say, look guys, you don't worry about me. Uh, If I get run over, that's my, that's my problem. Mm-hmm. but I will get out of your way and, and, but I need to be in here to get the image. And they didn't pay a bit of attention to me. And I just would jump duck out of the way to get the image. And, and, uh, everybody got along just, just wonderfully. Yeah. Those, those photos, like there's some branding photos and just some, just some of the images. They're just beautiful. Like those are the ones that need to be printed, okay. printed and put on, you know, Anywhere you can, USA. They're just stunning. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, my God. I, I, if, if you've got a shopping cart on your website, I could pick out about a dozen I'd like to order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, in fact, I've got to go photograph uh, some branding here in about, uh, oh, a little over a week uh, up on the 460s ranch. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and so I've got to, but, but now I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Matt, what's really making things wonderful now. Of course, I've been a pilot for over 40 years, but drones. Um, I've got two Mavic 2 Pros. You've gotten into and, it. Oh, big time, big time. I do so much real estate uh, property photography, and drones are totally essential. And so uh, I used to shoot and fly at the same time, which is sometimes pretty dangerous, a little sketchy, because uh-huh. you're always flying at low levels. You have the door off the plane. You've got the controls in your knees, and you're trying to focus. Or Back in the film days, I would have to focus, compose, and shoot and fly the plane, maintaining you know, uh, an optimal uh, airspeed so you won't, you know, spin in. But now I just crawl in the pickup and turn the radio on and launch the drone. And I sit in there and listen to music and I, and I get great images. <laughs> well, that's a bit different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when did you yeah. start, when did you get into drones? When did you start to like, uh, several years ago, I have my, I have my commercial drone license and, um, uh, it's going to be probably five years ago. I really got into to drone work heavily. Aren't they fun? And, uh, oh, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I, I fly mine all the time. I like I say, I've got two in case I crash one because a lot of my uh, my photography is made four or five hundred miles away from home, and it is dependent on drones. And so, if I hang a drone up and can't find it, well, I've got my second one. Right. You know, that I can put out there and then try to focus on finding the first one later. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that is great that, uh, that you know, you're, you're constantly like pivoting and, and, and con- taking on those challenges. Because, you know, if someone who's a pilot might look at the drone and say, that's a silly toy, but you're utilizing it oh, as a, a tool in your toolbox, Absolutely. which is smart. Absolutely. It's, it's totally essential now. Totally totally essential. Like for instance, uh, I go up into the, uh, Chinati mountains sometimes in West Texas and you know, they're like 7,000 feet, which is not high for, for mountains, but in Texas, that's a pretty good mountain. Yeah. And, uh, they're craggy. There's no trails. I mean, it's, it's lion country. I mean, it's, it's tough country. And, uh, and I can, I can drive up on a Jeep road up to say, uh, 3000 feet or 4,000 feet, uh, uh, MSL and, and I, then I can launch my drone and at 1500 feet of AGL above ground where I am, I'm at the top of the mountain Wow! and I'm a mile away and there's clouds coming in, pouring in and I'm above the clouds. You know, I can't go over 1500 feet because you know, it won't let you, Sure. but I'm maxed out at 1500 feet AGL. And so, uh, and in the mountains, uh, in West Texas, a lot of time the clouds are down in the canyons. So I get to swing above the clouds and shoot these gorgeous shots with these canyons filled with clouds and the peaks sticking up. It's it's fantastic. What's your best drone photo you've you've made so far? Oh my goodness, I've made so many images. That's that's a difficult. That's yeah. a very difficult question. It's it there there if you're in the right place and it sounds like that is a great place, you can make unbelievable images. That you can, oh, you can, that if someone would have told you in 1985, you'd have said, no way in hell. Oh, oh no, no, I, it was just beyond comprehension. In fact, the other day I was shooting a property 
and I flew over a rookery of uh, gray blue herons and some cottonwood trees. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm I'm going to try to ease down and get a great shot of a nest with a with a great blue heron sitting on it. And so very carefully, because you're you're kind of drifting down through the limbs, and you've got uh, your drone set on on obstacle avoidance to keep from really screwing things up good. <laughs> and uh, and I got this fantastic shot poised right above a great blue heron nest. Uh, with this, the compositional layout of the limbs and the surrounding habitat was just beautiful. I just worked it up while ago and sent it to the client. Wow. Yeah, fantastic. That See, it's that kind of stuff that's just, it's a great tool to have. It's a fantastic tool. It is, if you don't abuse it. And too many people abuse it. And, of course, that that results in more FAA regulations and, right. you know, and, and uh, you know, that's one thing you don't want to get into is a bunch of bunch of uh, government red tape. Right. You're now you've got a lot of open land, right? You don't have any Air Force oh, bases yeah. or anything, national parks. That- no, no, I have nothing like that. I mean, I've got a a small airport over here, ten miles away, but that's not controlled airspace. Okay. Uh, the, the The worst situation I got into was uh, I had to photograph a property near Waco. Well, I was bumping up against the controlled airspace. I was probably a half a mile from controlled airspace. And of course, if you're in controlled airspace, it won't even allow you to take off. Right. Your drone won't even start. And so, but I kept getting these warnings, you know, you're nearing. And so I'd, I'd pull away from it. Well, and it said, warning also, you may have radio interference. Well, by God, I found out what that was about. <laughs> I launched that drone one morning and the light was perfect. And I parked it about a quarter of a mile away to get a really good still image. And all of a sudden I lost all contact with my drone for like 20 minutes. Whoa, that's a long time. It was like, it was like disappeared. And my biggest fear was my God, it went rogue and it's landed down at a red light in Waco, Texas, down by the courthouse. With your name on it. Yeah, with my name on it, serial number, and here comes FAA. You know, I could just see it all coming. But I don't know where that drone went. I couldn't hear it. I drove over there. I knew exactly where it was. But but I could not hear it. It said it was like 90 feet away, but I know it wasn't. And then whenever it got down to like 10, uh, like five minutes or something, or like 25% power that remained, well, then it gave me the warning. It's going home. And all of a sudden, the drone crossed my screen. And when I got back to where I'd launched it, there it sat waiting for me. <laughs> I don't know where it was hiding. <laughs> a mind of its own. Yeah. I've... Yeah, a mind of its own for 20 minutes. Oh, God, that's the longest 20 minutes of your life trying to scan in the <laughs> sky for that little teeny sparrow. I'm telling you, I was scared. I, I did not want that value on me. <laughs> it's, well, all of a sudden, the worst case scenarios start going through your head. Oh, sure. Like, how far did it, can it go? It's, you know, it, it could be landing anywhere. It's going to hit a little kid in the playground. It's going to crash into an airplane, whatever. Right. Oh, my God. You know, I, just don't, I don't do daring things with it. You know, I'm, I'm strictly professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, may, I may, you know, in mountainous terrain, in these big ranches, I'll, you know, I'll fly and follow the cowboys trotting at sunrise and get right down next to them and just creep along beside them and get these great videos. But as far as doing stupid things, I do not. In the same way with an airplane, you know, I never did 
really get into doing crazy things in an aircraft. I think the worst thing I did, I did, I did three loops one day and made myself so sick I couldn't hardly land. <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not flying against zeros out in the Pacific. There's no reason to do three loops. <laughs> that's right. But it just, I just wanted to do three loops in a row without stopping. I was in a, I was in an open cockpit aerobatic uh, bi-wing aircraft, and I climbed up to six thousand feet. I had a uh, I had a Canon F one uh, duct taped to the wing above me, pointed at me with a twenty millimeter lens preset focus. I mean preset uh, exposure mm-hmm. with a uh, with a shutter release ran down through the front cockpit, in through the firewall, and taped to my throttle. So when I would go up and do a loop or an Immelman, well, I'd take pictures of myself. Oh, my And God. I did three in a row, and uh, tit-tat-toe, boy, I was sick. <laughs> and that plane lands at 90 miles an hour, so I thought, man, I don't even know if I can get this thing on the ground. But I finally got it down, and I fell out of that thing and just laid on the on the tarmac <laughs> just laid there. Just so sick, I was going to throw up everywhere. If the good Lord was an FAA inspector, he would have been upset more with the duct tape than your three loops. Yeah, he would have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That, oh, my dad used to work at the FAA, and that was one thing that, oh, he hear that, he would have lost his mind because people always just think like, oh, I can make it work until it falls out of the sky. Yeah, yeah. Now, I had a, actually had a monopod that ran into the front cockpit and then I had it taped to some structure in the front cockpit because it was just me and the mm-hmm. plane. And then the, uh, the, the, the monopod was run through the hand hold in the wing. And so, so the, the camera wasn't going anywhere. Right. You over-engineered uh, it. it. Yeah. I was engineering it really tight and the pictures are just totally razor sharp. That's what I was going to say. Okay. The real question, how great are the photos? They're really cool. I got one shot of me coming out of an Emmelman and the world is like, uh, the horizon is crossways on my tail and, uh, and it's just sharp as a razor. All right. You got to send me one of those for, for the uh, podcast promotion. Cause that sounds, oh, I will. that I will. sounds Be great. I mean, th- but see, that's what's so, we are so lucky that we get to do, you know, and create pictures like that. And you have that of yourself because if, if you're roofing, you know, and doing tar in, in Waco, you don't have cool pictures of yourself like that. But we are right. we are we are so lucky as artists to be able to capture and make pictures. It's we're so lucky. Absolutely. Oh Absolutely. I, I count myself lucky every day. Well, you got you got an unbelievable phone call in nineteen ninety seven that a lot of people don't get. I don't think I don't know of anybody that else has. And no, sir. yeah, and, and I met the man who, who you, the governor at the time, he was the president and I should have asked him who his favorite uh, photographer was when I met him in 2001. But to uh-huh. talk, talk about this, this unusual phone call you get. Yeah. Um, it came from Austin. Um, I forgot. I might've been on the, I've been, might've been in my pickup, um, probably using a bag phone at the time. That was an early day. <laughs> yeah. Those good old um, days. Yeah. And so I uh, just said, Hey, uh, Wyman, can you be in, in Austin at the Capitol building like on, on Tuesday? And this was like Friday. And I said, well, yeah, I guess so. But why? 
And they say, well, you've been designated the state photographer of Texas by the 75th legislature and George W. Bush, who was the governor at the time. And so uh, I drove to Austin, changed into a suit out in, a, and now, I don't normally wear a suit. I know, but hold all. on now, hold on. Now, once you hang up, are you thinking like, did someone pull your leg? Because that's an unusual request. Well, no, it was pretty official. It was from it was from a state representative's office. Okay. In the Capitol building. And he said he did specify, he said, now you need to you need to have a a suit on. <laughs> so I did have a suit. And when I got to the parking lot in Austin, I changed into my suit and walked in the Capitol. And then they took me to the legislature floor and then I went up to the to the gap to the uh, podium and then they read off uh, whatever it, they call those things. It's mm-hmm. it's all this is reading and and then the uh, uh, speaker of the house would use his gavel and and so it 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 was that's that's when it occurred. That is so. And then, and, and then George W. Bush came in. Uh, I was led into an office and he walked in and uh, and uh, sat down and, and signed it for me. And I got a picture of uh, of, of uh, Governor Bush, then Governor Bush, mm-hmm. and myself. Since then, I've I've done two or three shoots for uh, uh, President Bush at his ranch uh, there in Crawford uh-huh. and uh, and actually had dinner with him and, and uh, Mrs. Bush, uh, my wife and I both, and we just had a grand time. He's just a – he's a really personable fellow when you get him just sitting at the dinner table and, and really shooting the bull. Yeah. No, I, I, I was doing the College World Series in June of 2001, so he's, he's new. Mm-hmm. He's just been in office four or five months and he throws out the opening pitch. As you know, he, you know, was part owner of the Texas Rangers. He's a huge baseball yeah. guy. So he throws out the college world series first pitch and they lock down. I was supposed to be down on the field, but they locked down the press box. So I couldn't get down. So I make the pitcher from the press box. They lock uh-huh. it down. I can't go down. He comes up. The security tells us, don't move, let him make his way through, and then you can't. And I don't know why he stopped. He walked right up to me. He said, wow, you got a lot of camera gear. I said, "Uh, yes, sir, I do. He just reached out. Yeah, he just reached out, shook my hand. He says, how's your day going? I said, great, until I can uh, get down on the field. He goes, well, don't let me hold you up. And he patted me on the back, and then off he went. And you could see all these security kind of like, you're not supposed to be moving, but I'm like, the boss told me to move. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he was he was yeah. a kick. He was great. He stuck around for the yeah. whole game and watched it at a time. Yeah. Well, you know, when, uh, I think it was that day because I had been around him. He actually came to a book signing of, uh, of, uh, of mine and Andy Sansom's book in 1996, I believe, when he was governor. And uh, – and he he came to that book saying, I don't know why, but but the PR lady came up to me. And she said, now, the governor wants to talk to you. And so I said, well, why? <laughs> and she said, well, he just wants to talk to you about your work and everything. Well, he, he came up with his uh, with two highway patrolman troopers uh, as his bodyguards mm-hmm. and, and just shot the bull with me for a little while. Of course, I was dressed in jeans and my high top boots and everything, my typical attire. Uh, W.C. Russell boots. And so I, uh, and I didn't see him and he left. Well, then, then Carl Rove and I were friends because I'd photographed him when I was doing a book on quail hunting. And he said, you need to come to Austin sometimes. And I'll introduce you to some people you need to know. Well, then he had a party at his house and he called me. So I said, yeah, I'll come. 
And so then Governor Bush was there along with a bunch of federal judges. And, and I talked to, to the governor at that time. Well, that's the only two times I ever saw him. Well, whenever he came out in 97 to sign this decree, the first words out of his mouth, he said, I didn't even know you owned a suit. <laughs> I went, my God, he remembered. Of all the people that he gets to see, he remembered that I don't wear a suit hardly ever. And I wear my boots, my jeans, my Wrangler jeans, and just a shirt. And he remembered that. And that impressed me. That see, now that is impressive. That is impressive because God knows you, you know, he meets up even at that time, he's met thousands of people when he was in Congress and, and governor and running the business and everything. And for him to remember you like that is impressive. Oh, yeah, that's very impressive. Good Lord. Very impressive. So what do you get with that? Do you get like a belt buckle or like, do you get out of, do you get out? I don't know. You get, you know, you get, uh, oh, kind of an award thing and, and it's, it's a prestige deal. Sure. You know, it's prestige. It's, it's, um, you know, and it, and it states, uh, that basically it's forever until I, until I pass. And so, um, it's um, it's I'm I'm very honored. I feel very honored to be able to, and I never use it. I don't go up and say, "Hey, I'm a state photographer of Texas." I just say, "Hey, I'm Wyoming Mitchell." Blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, I take a picture, and but I never use it and and drop names or anything. But a lot of people do pick up on it and they go, "Oh man, you're the state photographer of Texas." And I, yeah, I know, but you know, I'm I'm just I'm just a regular guy with a camera. You are, um, sir. You are, boy. I tell you. I bet you can give a look that can change people's uh, mind real quick. <laughs> Make a coyote run the other way. <laughs> For sure that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to ask you, I want to, I want to ask you these words and I want you to tell me what they mean to you. Cause I, your background and your love of everything you do. I want to throw these words out and you tell me, so what does family mean to you? Uh, well, it just means, you know, I don't know, love for your, for your sons and brothers and mothers and fathers and sisters and, you know, just, uh, cohesiveness, uh, solid, uh, upbringing. Yeah. See basically. that, that right there should be tattooed onto every Marine's arm. Cause that's like perfect. That's just unbelievable. Okay. So, so what does Texas mean to you? Oh, Texas. Texas, I, I, I was telling, I had some uh, German filmmakers here this morning. Uh, from <laughs> Oh, that's <and> all. <laughs> they were doing, they're doing a film on Texas and, and I've helped them for about four days. And, uh, and so they asked me the same thing. What does it mean to be Texan? You know, and it's, it's just a source of pride. We're independent, very independent minded people for the most part, especially those of us <clears throat> who was, uh, raised in, in open country, big country, ranch country, uh, where we take great pride in the state of Texas, the Lone Star State. And um, we're just a, we're a can-do people. I can do. I've proven to myself as starting out as a cowboy and then studying to be a wildlife biologist and then to a professional predator hunter and eventually into a photographer that has that has as that has uh, been elevated to the level that it is today, whatever that is. I'm very proud of it, but it shows that uh, to me, a Texan generally feels we can do it. 
if we set our minds to it, we can do it. Ah, that's good. What, what does photography mean to you? Oh, it's documenting to me. Okay. I see so many interesting things. I mean, on private ranches, uh, archaeological, paleontological, historically, you know, uh, contemporary. I see all these different things. And to me, photography is documenting those rare moments that some of us get to observe to share with those who will never get to see them. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And that's what I love about it. Yeah, we're... Again, it's it's such a... And and recreating that moment. And say, you, you know as well or better than me, you know, you're not going to point your camera unless you feel very uh, stimulated about that moment, that instant. And when you get that, when you capture, when you create that instant on sensor, on film, I can go back to that image and I can have that feeling of inspiration, that feeling of, you know, of, of, uh, of happiness and, you know, uh, energy that a great image offers and or a great scene. And I get to relive it time and time again. And I get to share it with others. Yeah. Yeah. How, how has your process changed now with digital or just in your age compared to when you were doing it in the late seventies, early eighties, how is your process different? Process meaning just in making the images. Oh, I, I treat I treat it uh, the same way as I did film. The the when I used to do it in the you know first started in the seventies. Okay. I mean, I take time. I compose. I don't uh, I don't go out at ten o'clock when I could go out at at seven. I go out at seven instead of wait until the light gets too bright. Uh, I want to be able to look at that raw image and say, "Wow, that was a light I saw." It's a little it's a little bit flat, but I know that I can just tweak it to that what I what really inspired me to trip that shutter. Yeah, that's and so the process really hadn't changed. It's uh it's it's all about composition, it's all about light, it's all about getting that great color and uh that uh creating that image that uh that's very stimulating and and uh and and provides so much energy to make you want to go out and do it again. What do you think the best image you've made what's what's your favorite oh, wow and, 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 and it's always kind of easy i ask this of people and they go oh wow but let's say your brother-in-law wants a wants a print what print would you make mm-hmm. wow man that's that is that's a tough one because there's so many different subjects you know there's weather there's wildlife there's there's people there's you know landscape uh you you would have to break it down into us into one category. Last five years. Or, or, <laughs> in the last five years. <laughs> some of my some of my most memorable images are with a drone. Really? Wow. That's, oh yeah. That's cool. I mean, I I was just I would just in fact I sent a, a video clip with the German guys today, uh, um, Daniel and Marcus. They're headed on down to Austin to do some filming, and. Uh, and it's just a tremendous shot of a line of about 10 cowboys uh, going into the rising sun early one morning, which is typical on big ranches. Mm-hmm. You start just at sunrise 
and you and you and we're talking about hundred thousand acre ranches. <laughs> and I was flying that drone along beside them, and you could the sun was in the photograph, and those guys were in a perfect straight line going right into that sun. And I was I was I was sort of off to one side and slightly behind them to where the drone could get everybody in the photograph. So they were sort of uh, diagonal across the frame is an awesome photograph. Wow. All right. So here's the heartbreaker. What is the one you missed? You wish you can have back. Oh man. Maybe a bad roll of film, you know, something breaks in the spool. It was my screw up. Yeah. It was my screw up. When I was shooting the book on coyotes back in 1993, uh, I was in a blind, like you were talking about, made out of uh, stumps and cow chips. And uh, I'd been in there for hours waiting for these coyotes to come to this dead cow or a dead horse. I can't remember. And this alpha male coyote came in, and there was a uh, a, a submissive coyote there before the, the alpha male got there. And so they squared off, and the male alpha male came right at the camera because the other coyote had its butt turned toward me. And he came right at the at the camera, 500 millimeter lens, and I was focused right on his face. And I grabbed that shot. And before I could even think about it, I opened the back of the camera and I ruined that. Yes. I was down to like number 30, 36. And I was so excited before I hit the, the uh, rewind button. I flicked the camera back open and it ruined that roll of film. Oh. oh, forever, forever. I just closed the camera and dropped my head and I almost cried. I- I'm tearing up now. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, it's such a pain. I, 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 I know that feeling. It's And all of a sudden you're looking and you want to see the back of the shutter blades and you're steering at brown film. Yes. You're, you're staring at that film and you go, I blew it. Yes. I knew better and I blew it. Yeah. Why Why are there sprocket holes? It's like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> yeah. Where'd those come from? <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Oh God, that's painful, sir. Oh God. Yeah. We've all, we've all been there once or twice and it just, it happens and you just kind of. Yeah. Damn, and it's weird. It was because you were so. If it was a just a images you kind of made, and then you go to rewind, but you were so excited and caught up in the moment, literally your brain got away from you. Yes, yes. I mean, it was it was going to be an an actual lifetime photograph. I'd been in there for two or three hours, freezing cold, and finally the moment came. And I blew it by opening the back of that camera. Oh, man. Yeah, that hurt. Now, you mentioned mentioned it earlier about the boots. There's actually, you've got boots. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, I'm on the pro staff of uh, W.C. Russell out of Berlin, Wisconsin. And uh, they're wonderful. I've worn these uh, boots. I've worn out about 10 pair uh, (laughs) since 1987. And so, uh, yeah, that's bad. That's wonderful. just they're, badass they're, to have your own clothing line, yeah, your shoes. That's that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Ansel Adams but didn't you know, have clothes. Know. He had a martini, but he certainly didn't have boots. <laughs> Minor White yeah, did it. Ed Weston, none of the guys. <laughs> yeah, 
When I ordered the first pair, I remember Ralph, the, the, the gentleman who owns the place, he said, now that's an old style of boot dating back to the early 20th century. And I said, that's exactly what I want. Oh, and he said, okay, I'll They're beautiful boots. I mean, in the, in the research, yeah. when I was looking, there's that shot on your website with all the old boots and you're, you're wearing the one in the yeah. middle. And they're, it's just, those boots look so comfortable. They are. They're very, very comfortable. I mean, and I bet you can be on your feet all day and they pay off at the end of the day walking around in some of that they rough do. terrain. And it's and they support my ankle. So I see I, I tore my ankle when uh, I believe my right ankle up when I was in college playing a, a pickup game in basketball, just ripped all of the the uh tendons loose or the uh well, whatever the muscle is, it holds uh, cartilage there. All of it. You tore it all. I tore it. I mean, that thing turned black and blue and, and within two minutes. And, uh, and so they support my ankles as well. And then whenever I'm walking in cactus and, and uh, you know, rough terrain, they, they protect my shins from cacti and from rocks and boulders hitting and uh, things like that. Yeah, I see that they're they're 15 inches high. That's a good cover. Yeah. But see, I've only got, I'm, yeah, I'm only 5'7. I got a 28 inseam. That's, that would go up to my thigh. There's no way. I <laughs> yeah. I couldn't wear that boot. I, I look like a go go dancer <laughs> in the, the whiskey a go go or something. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> There's no way I could pull that off. You, on the other hand, can pull it off, sir. <laughs> how, how are you doing? Like I, like we mentioned, I, I, I saw the story like Fessel did and, and Yeti, like at this part of your career, how are you, how are you doing with the recognition that you're getting? You've been on podcasts and you know, they're doing stories of you. Is that kind of, well, like, yeah. is, it, is it interesting? Is it odd? Is I'm, 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 I'm honored. I'm very honored. And I try to accommodate everybody. Um, uh, this stuff does not go to my head at all. I mean, I'm just a reg to me. I'm just a regular guy. I like to go out and drink a beer or a glass of wine in the afternoon. I drive an old pickup. Uh, I've got a couple of pickups and Toyota with 240,000 miles and a <laughs> Chevrolet, uh, 71 with 331,000 miles on it. And I'm just a regular guy, but I, I enjoy, uh, creating images huh. and, uh, and I've been pretty successful at it. And I appreciate the interest that people shows. I, I sincerely appreciate it. And I consider it an honor. Somebody walks up to me at a store and says, I know you I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I love your work. I consider that an honor. And I stop and I talk to everybody. Oh, that's nice. See that, that you are, you are everything I hope you were going to be in this interview and more like I, I, all my research and like, this was the, I could barely sleep last night. It was like Christmas day. And I was seven years old trying to get to this podcast at one o'clock. Like I just, (laughs) I wanted this to happen so bad. And I was joking like with my wife saying, this might be the first podcast I do where I cry because <laughs> hearing well, a lot of it. It's you know, hearing you talk. It's um, it's like my, my dad had that Texas accent, and then he lost it. And he had been to Colorado and California, but when he would go home or he'd go into Texas, it would immediately come back. 
And so yeah. I felt like in this podcast, it was like talking to my dad and like, or listening to his, his accent. And I was like, Oh, I told my wife, if I can get through these, you know, hour and a half, two hours without tearing up, it's going to be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I really do. I, I'm, I'm honored by everyone who appreciates my work and, and I hope I can continue to do that. Yeah. You, you are making beautiful work. And, and I mean this in the most sincere way, like still at 71, you're still killing it. Like a lot of guys slow yeah. down, like at their, they get to the late fifties and the sixties and they're slowing down. And, and what you're doing is a lot of like, it's real work. You're out in a ranch, you're out in elevation, you're climbing. I mean, you're not like sitting back yeah. at all. You're still producing unbelievable high quality work. And that is. Yeah, I can't, I can't sit still. I, I really can't. Every every day when I when I wake, I'm thinking, what can I do today uh, that's that's going to be an adventure? No matter uh, how small it is, if it's or if it's a major life changer, I just want to be able to accomplish something by the end of the day. And uh, and I love it. Uh, it's in my soul, my heart and soul. I grew up that way, um, and I guess I'll keep doing it until. I get called on that uh, last great ride. Are, are you a grandfather? Yes, I am. Oh, because you, you, you have to be. You would be the world's greatest grandfather. You would be so much <laughs> well, fun. <laughs> yeah, I take my my uh, my youngest son has uh, three children, and two of them love to fly, and so I take them up in the plane, and and we fly around for like an hour or some morning over this old rough country in this ranch country and they just love it. I let them fly the plane and, oh. and then I'll take, if I, if I say, okay, we need to land and I'll go ahead and take it from here. Stay <laughs> on the controls. with me, And so you'll, you'll know what it's like to land an airplane. And so they stay on the rudders and the stick with me and we come in and, and make a landing and they, they just love it. That's awesome. See, you, you, you're, you're absolutely the best. This was more than I ever could expect it, sir. You are a hero. I can't thank you enough for well, for this time good. today. You're very kind. No, thank this, you very much. This has been an absolute pleasure. You, all the recognition you get, you deserve that and more. The images that you're making are outstanding. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm so glad we were able to do this. Well, I'm I'm honored that you want to talk to me. Oh, Thank please. you very much. You're making me want to move to West Texas if I could talk my wife into it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> if not, at least I'm going to use some of my Southwest miles and come by and buy a beer at least, for the love of God, man. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You, you bet, man. Thank you very much. You're, you're a kind person and, and, a, and a great guy. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Wyman Menzer. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Jessica Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website at jessicaconversation.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>